Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take off your sandals, off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have, observe, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Hey, good morning. I am Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm also her husband. Uh, and great job with the Parasites and the Amorites, babe. Um, we are excited that you guys are, are here today. Um, we're in Exodus chapter 3. Uh, and we're continuing uh, our, sto- or our, our 
series through this story uh, in the book of Exodus. Um, We had the opportunity during the first gathering uh, to baptize a new new member. Some of you guys know him, David Ross. And and one of the things David said uh, in in his testimony during his baptism was he said, this is not the story of me being strong or of me conquering. But this is a story of something that God has been doing to do for me and to do for people what they can't do for themselves. And that's what the story of Exodus is all about. The story of Exodus is all about redemption. It's all about God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. But it's not just a story of something that happened to a group of people 3,500 years ago living somewhere in the Middle East, but it's the story of you and me. It's the story of how God steps in to bring redemption. And we've come today to one of the pivotal moments in the story. As a matter of fact, I would probably go so far as to say this is one of the pivotal moments in the history of the world that we're going to look at in Exodus chapter 3. Because in Exodus chapter 3, what you see is that God steps into the story. What you see is that God steps in and reveals himself. What you see is that God literally, in in this passage, introduces himself and tells us his name. Because up to this point in the book of Exodus, God has kind of been operating in the shadows. God's been working behind the scene. And in this passage that we're going to look at here today, God steps in and he shows himself. And what I love about this story is that this isn't just a story about how God showed himself to some shepherd living in the Middle East 3,500 years ago, but this is the story about how God reveals himself to you and me. This is the story about the God who wants you to encounter him today. So here's the thing with Moses in this passage. Moses has heard about God. He has heard of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but he has never personally encountered him. And in this story, Moses meets God, and it changes everything. And here's what I want you to know and I want myself to be aware of today, that that same God, the God who Moses encountered in this burning bush 3,500 years ago, is the same God who wants you to encounter him today. Maybe he's been operating in the shadows. Maybe he's been been working behind the scenes in your life. And today he wants to come out of the shadows and he wants to show you who he is. Maybe you're like Moses. Maybe you've heard of this God. Like you're sitting in church, so odds are you've heard of this God and you've heard people talk about him, but maybe you've never actually met him for yourself. Maybe, like Moses, in your life you've been wandering around in a metaphorical wilderness. At this point in the story, Moses has been a shepherd in the wilderness for the past 40 years. Okay, so the first 40 years of his life, he grew up, he's a prince. He's living in the royal house in Egypt. And now for the past 40 years in his life, he has been a nobody. He's been a nobody living in the middle of nowhere with no aim and no purpose and no sense of destiny in his life. And maybe you're like him today where you look at your life and it hasn't turned out the way that you planned. And your career has fallen apart. Your marriage has fallen apart. Maybe it never materialized in the first place and your hopes and your dreams lie there in a heap of ruins and you feel forgotten by other people and you feel forgotten by a God. And maybe that's exactly where God wants you to be today. Because maybe what God wants to do is he wants to step in, that he has brought you out into the wilderness so that he can show himself to you. 
And so here's what I want to encourage you to do today. I want to encourage you, like Moses in this passage, to stop and look. Stop and look and pay attention and listen to what God might be showing you about himself. Exodus chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. We'll come back to that later in the book of Exodus. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. All right, so here's Moses. He's out there keeping sheep. This is just a normal day for Moses, okay? It starts out normal. He's keeping sheep. I don't know what you do when you keep sheep, but whatever it is, that's what he's doing. He's out there keeping sheep, and he's going along, and he sees a brush fire. And at first, that's no big deal because Moses is in the desert, and he sees brush fires all the time. But there's something different about this one. Because normally when he sees a brush fire, it kind of flames up really quickly and then it dies out because there's no fuel in these dry bushes in in the desert. But Moses looks and he sees it and it's like it's still burning. And it's still burning and it's still burning. And And he goes over and he looks and there's a fire, but this bush isn't being burned out. And so he goes closer and he says, I gotta see what's going on here. I've gotta investigate. I've gotta check this out for myself. And here's the thing that that sometimes we miss. God is doing this all the time. Like maybe not a literal burning bush, but God is doing this all the time. God is showing himself to us all the time, and he's doing it in things that at first glance seem utterly normal. It was utterly normal for Moses to see this bush. Now listen, I do think it was a miracle. I do think there was something extraordinary going on here. But here's my point. At first glance, it didn't look extraordinary. At first glance, it didn't look like a miracle. It looked like something Moses saw every day. And I'm afraid that for many of us, that's what happens in our lives. That God wants to show up. And he shows himself to us in something that looks utterly ordinary. And Moses here, Moses could have just walked by. He could have simply ignored it. And that's what many of us do. God wants to show himself to us. He uses a sunset or a conversation with a friend, or a question that you've never thought of before, or or just like being here today, this utterly ordinary, unspectacular worship gathering. And for many of us, what we do is we do the exact opposite of Moses. We just rush past it, because I got sheep to feed, because I got bills to pay. We live in a world that is constantly trying to distract us. We live in a world where entire industries are built on distracting us. This past week, I was uh, listening to a podcast all about the dangers of distraction. In the middle of this podcast, what did I do? I pulled up my phone and I started scrolling social media. There is distraction absolutely everywhere, and especially when it comes to the things of God. There are voices seeking to get us to ignore what God might be trying to say to us. And so my, my, my initial encouragement to you today is fight against it and don't walk by. Like, what would have happened if Moses had just walked by? What if he hadn't turned aside? What if he hadn't investigated it? Where would he be? Where would I be? Where would the world be? So pay attention 
And be curious and ask questions and investigate. And are you willing to have your paradigms challenged? See, the fact is, God is going to absolutely shatter Moses' paradigms here in just a minute. And he uses very ordinary things to get our attention and to show himself to us and to open up to us a world of possibilities wider than we've ever considered before. Let me just say, this is why we spent the whole month of January talking about Sabbath and silence and solitude. Because we need to create margin in our lives so that we have space, so that we can pay attention when God shows up in the warp and woof of ordinary life and wants to show himself to us. God reveals himself to Moses in the midst of ordinary life. And he, he reveals a lot here. We're going to look at three big truths from this passage. So these are three things that God showed Moses on the day that he met him here and three things that he wants to show us today. So three things about God. One, this is the God who is set apart. Two, this is the God who comes near. And three, this is the God who doesn't change. The God who's set apart, the God who comes near, and the God who doesn't change. First, the God who is set apart. Verse two, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Okay, so angel of the Lord, I'm not going to get all into this right now, but you see the angel of the Lord appear over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And what most scholars have noticed is that the angel of the Lord is basically how God shows up when he wants to make himself known to someone and not vaporize them. It's a way of God coming near. The angel of the Lord is identified with God, and yet he's distinct from God. And that's what God's doing here. God's coming near to Moses, and he is saying, I'm going to show myself to you. And look what he shows him, verse 2. He, Moses, looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it wasn't consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, which I don't know like if God sounds like James Earl Jones or Morgan Freeman, or I'm not exactly sure what it sounded like, but he calls to him somehow, Moses, Moses, and he says, here I am. God shows up as a fire, and he's showing us something about himself. He does this all throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. God shows up as a fire. Why? Think about a fire. Think about, like, you can even just look at these candles right here. Think about fire. Fire is beautiful. Fire is compelling. Fire is attractive. You're drawn to it. it. It provides warmth. It provides light. It enables us to cook our food. In the ancient world, fire was so precious, they actually had keepers of the flame because they knew this was basic to life itself. But here's the other thing about fire. Fire is dangerous. Fire is not something that you play around with. Fire is something that you take seriously. We're, we're uh, kind of convinced that my middle child, my daughter, Marilane, we think maybe she was born without the gene for fear. Um, and every time we make a fire in the fire pit in the backyard, we're reminded of this. Because fire is dangerous. And you've got to be really careful to make sure that she doesn't go right into the fire pit. Listen, that's what God's like. God's a fire. He is beautiful and he is attractive, and he is compelling, and he, gives, he is, gives warmth and joy and life and light and power, but he is also dangerous. There is a wildness about God where he can't be tamed, and he doesn't play by our rules, and he doesn't tone it down to conform to our expectations, and he is someone to be taken seriously. 
That's why God warns Moses here, verse 5. He says, then he said, do not come near. Take the sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He says, watch yourself, Moses. Be careful, Moses. You, you don't belong here, Moses, because this is holy ground. Now, some of us, as we hear that, we're, we're immediately trying to bow up, and we're like, no, who are you talking to, God? Like, who are you to say, I don't belong here? I'll go wherever I want. And the reason we naturally think that way is because we have been conditioned to think that way. Our culture, especially a modern Western culture, conditions us to think small thoughts of God and big thoughts of ourselves. And when God breaks in, and when you actually encounter the God who is there, that gets turned upside down. And you begin to think big thoughts of God and very much more realistic, smaller thoughts of yourself. Verse 6, look what happens when you encounter God. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. For he was afraid to look at God. That's what happens when you begin to encounter God. He hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And this isn't just Moses. You see this all over the Bible. I'm going to throw up some, some references uh, in back here. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has this vision. He sees the Lord lofty and exalted, the train of his robe filling the temple. Isaiah sees God for who he is, and he cries out, and he falls as if he's dead and he says woe is me i am undone literally i am disintegrating i am falling apart for i've seen god and i am unclean see when god shows himself for who he is we begin to see ourselves for who we are his holiness exposes our sinfulness his perfection exposes our imperfection. His greatness exposes our smallness. His light exposes our darkness. His, uh, his beauty, rather, exposes our ugliness. And that is not just something that happens in the Old Testament. This is what happens when people encounter Jesus in the Gospels. Mark chapter 4, there's a story about Jesus is out on the, the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, and Jesus is exhausted. So Jesus is in the boat, and he's taking a nap, and, and this, this storm comes up, and the disciples are terrified. They're like, this is it. We're going down with the ship. It is over. And so they run to Jesus, and they wake him up. Jesus, Jesus, wake up, and they say, we're, we're going to die here, Jesus. And Jesus stands up, and he just speaks to the wind and the waves, and he says, peace, be still. In the first sermon, the, the wind actually died down when I said it didn't work this time. But uh, <laughs> I'm not Jesus. So, uh, but he says, he said, peace, be still. He, it's, like, it's like he just says to the wind and the waves, that's enough. And it stops. And it's like glass on the waves. And then it says this in verse 41. And they were filled with great fear. And said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Like, think about that. They were terrified. They were terrified of the wind and the waves and the sea. They thought they were going to die. But then what is it that makes them filled with great fear? It's the fact that there was this guy sleeping in their boat and they just woke him up from a nap and he just speaks and the wind and the waves obey him. Do you see? 
When you encounter the greatness of God, when you encounter the God who is really there, the God who spoke the universe into existence, or the God who speaks and calms the sea, there is an appropriate reverence. There is an appropriate fear because you realize this is someone who I need to take seriously. This this is why we begin every gathering here at Soma with a call to worship. Because we're reminding ourselves God is holy. God is worthy of worship. God is not someone that we take lightly. We start with that and we move to a time of confession because when we see that God and when we encounter that God for who he is, we begin to encounter ourselves for who we are and we realize that God's holy and I am not holy. And you also realize he sees all of it and I couldn't play religious games with him if I wanted to play religious games with him. And he invites me to come and to be honest about who I am in light of who he is. He's holy. He is set apart. That's literally what holy means. It means set apart. That he is different. That he is not like us. That he is the creator and we are the creature. That he is righteous and we are sinful. That he is perfect and we are broken. That's where it starts when you encounter God. Thank God it doesn't stop there. God doesn't stop there. That is not the end of the story because this is not just the God who is set apart. What you also see is here, here is that he is the God who sets us apart. He's not just the holy God. He is the God who makes us holy. Look at verse 6. What does he say to Moses? Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now, what is it? What is it that makes that ground holy? What is, so, is there something special in the dirt? Does it have kryptonite in it? Does it have some special mineral? Is it something about this longitude and this latitude? What is it that makes this plot of dirt holy and this plot of dirt over here not holy? It's the fact that God is there. That is the only thing that makes any difference between these two plots of dirt. It is the fact that God is there. That God is the holy one who makes things holy. Listen, God's holy, I love this, all throughout the Bible you see this, God's holiness is infectious. It is an infectious holiness. He's not just the holy one, but he is the one who makes things holy. He is the one who takes common, ordinary, even sinful and broken things, and he takes them, and he sets them apart for himself, and he makes them holy. Do you realize what that means? you realize that means that you don't have to prove yourself to God? That means that you don't have to posture. That means that you don't have to play the religious game and try to pretend that you are better than you are, that you've got it more together than you do, but you can simply come to him and you can be honest because you don't make yourself holy because God is the one who sets you apart and makes you holy. Look, that's what he is saying to Moses in this passage. That's the point he's driving home here. And he actually drives it home all throughout the Old Testament. He says, there's nothing special about you, Moses. And this group of people over here, the Hebrews, there's definitely nothing special about them. You're dirt. You're dirt. That's what it means to be a human being. Genesis 2, God creates man out of the dust of the ground and breathes into their nostrils the breath of life. You're dirt. I formed you out of the dust of the ground, but, but I'm calling you to myself, and I'm setting you apart for myself. See, holiness is not something you do to make yourself special or to clean yourself up or to earn your way into God's presence. It's something God does by his grace. 
He says, I don't love you because you're special. You're special because I love you. And I've chosen you. And I've set you apart for myself. And I have made you holy. Like this ordinary plot of dirt sitting here. My presence makes you holy. That leads us to the second thing you got to see about God. He's the God who's set apart, but he is also the God who comes near. The God who comes near. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I love, just look at the grammar of this passage. Look at the verbs. They're active verbs. He says, I have seen, and I know, and I have come down, and I will deliver, and I have heard them, and I will bring them up. Again, up to this point in the story, God's behind the scenes, but he is not going to stay there forever. He's not a God who stays hidden. He's not a God who simply plays it safe. He's not the God pulling the levers behind the curtain like the Wizard of Oz. He is stepping in. He is coming down to deliver his people. And his people have been waiting a long time for this. Like they've been waiting 400 years for God to step in. And not just God's people as a group. Moses personally has been waiting. He, he's been tending sheep in the middle of nowhere for the past 40 years. He started with all these grand visions for his life. He's a royal prince, and then he's a nobody. He wanted to save God's people, and he messed the whole thing up, and it all came crashing down, and now he's just barely eking out an existence on the backside of the desert. And here's the thing for you and me to see today. That when you think that God has forgotten you, it might be that he's got you right where he wants you to be. Those years that you think were wasted. Some of you guys are in those years right now. Those years that seem like a waste. Those might be the years that God is using to prepare you for something extraordinary. What's Moses been doing the last 40 years of his life? Last 40 years of his life, he's been tending sheep in the desert. Do you know what Moses is going to be doing the next 40 years of his life? He's going to be watching sheep in the desert. God calls his people his sheep. And he says, I'm going to take you and you're going to lead my people. You are going to lead my flock through the wilderness. And you're going to deal with their stubbornness and you're going to deal with their stupidity and you're going to lead them and you're going to feed them and you're going to clean up after them when they make a mess out of everything. See, God spends 40 years training Moses in the desert and he doesn't even know it. He spends 40 years bringing Moses low in the wilderness so that he can then raise him up to lead his people through the wilderness. I love what Henry Nouwen says. This is probably my favorite quote on leadership. Nouwen says this. He says, The great illusion of leadership is to think that man can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. That's what he does. He takes Moses through the desert so that he can prepare him to lead his people through the desert. He shatters Moses' illusions of self-sufficiency so that he can show him his all-sufficiency. Verse 10, look at this. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I? 
Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, someone asked me that. Here's, here's how I would be, would be tempted to respond. Who are you? I mean, like, you're Moses, Moses. Like, Charlton Heston played you in the, in the movie. Like, you're the, you're the prince. You, you were a prince, and you're smart, and you're gifted, and people like you, Moses, and you got this, man. Acts chapter 7. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and in his deeds. See, God has been preparing Moses. He's been preparing him behind the scenes for this exact moment. But it's fascinating. God doesn't talk about that in this passage. God's not interested in telling Moses all those things. Moses says, who am I and how does God answer the question? But I will be with you. He doesn't even answer the question. God says, Moses, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not who are you. The question is who is with you. And I'm convinced that one of the things I know in my own life and probably for many of us in this room, one of the things that keeps us from stepping into all that God has for us is we keep asking the wrong question. We keep asking, who am I? We keep seeing our own limitations or even our own strengths but they're not, they're not big enough for what God wants many of us to do. He says, who am I? And he says, the question you should be asking is who is with you? We just sang this song, let justice roll like a river. We cried out, cried out the same prayer that the people of God were crying out three and a half millennia ago in Egypt. Let justice roll like a river. We long for that. The world is broken. It is messed up. There is ugliness and brutality and oppression all over the place. And we long for justice. And we want to be a part of making it right. But here's something I've noticed. Something I've noticed both in the Bible and if you read history, you will find that the fight for justice, the fight for for working for the good of humanity is fueled by an awareness of a holy God. You look at Moses here, you look at the prophets all throughout the Bible, they encounter God. God makes himself known to them. And they see how amazing this God is. And they see how broken they are in light of that. And they experience God's grace. And then God sends them out on mission. You see it in the Bible. You see it in history. If you just look at the past 250 years, and you look at the great movements of justice in the past 250 years, they began with someone encountering God. Abolition movements in Britain and in America grew out of the Great Awakenings. Before William Wilberforce ever sets out to abolish the slave trade, he has this earth-shattering, life-shattering experience with a holy God. You look at Frederick Douglass, you read his writings, you find that there are these twin realities of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of human beings that are the fuel that helps him to keep going, working for the abolition of slavery. You look at the civil rights movement, and there's a reason the civil rights movement grew out of the soil of the African-American church. It's because it sprung out of the soil where people had learned to take God seriously, where they had learned to encounter God for themselves. So here's my point. We say all the time around here, we, want, we don't just want to build a great church. We want to be part of building a great city. And if we're going to do that, and if we're not just going to like give up on that, if we're going to do that over the long haul, it has got to flow from communion with God. It's got to flow from an awareness of who God is. Because if it doesn't, two things will happen. First thing that will happen is you'll just become a puppet for political powers. 
Listen, let me just say this very clearly. If your view of justice is the same as the platform of the Republican Party, or if your view of justice is the same as the platform for the Democratic Party, I would suggest to you that you are probably being more discipled by your Twitter feed and your cable news network of choice than you are for Je- by Jesus. Our views of justice are grounded in the holy and the just character of God. And when you encounter God for who he is, you can stand up to the political idols of the left or the right. It's got to be grounded in God. Because listen, here's the thing. It's only a big view of God. It is only an awareness and a communion of the God, with the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob that will sustain you over the long haul. Because like you keep reading the book of Exodus here, and, and God tells Moses, Moses, I want you to go and, and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And so after some bargaining, Moses finally agrees to go, and he goes out and he says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, yeah, sure, whatever. No, right? Pharaoh actually makes it worse. He makes it harder for the people of Israel. And then Moses' own people turn on him. And everybody else turns their back on Moses. And the only thing that keeps him going is the fact that he knows God is with me. And I don't know what God's called you into. I know some of you what God's called you into and how you're seeking to work for the advancement of his kingdom and the advancement of his gospel and the good of our city. But whatever it is, You've got to go with an awareness that God is with you. He says, I will be with you. You might be ordinary. You might just be like this little pile of dirt right here. You might just be like this this ordinary bush right here. But I will fill you with my presence and my power and my fire, and I will be with you. It's the God who sets us apart. It's the God who comes near finally. He's the God who doesn't change. He's the God who doesn't change. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's my name. I am who I am. By the way, anytime you see the capital L-O-R-D, that's the Hebrew Yahweh. It literally means the one who is. God says, that's who I am. I am the one who is. Now, that is one of the most loaded statements in the entire Bible. And I can't get into everything that it means today, but two things you need to say, see. First, that means that we can know God. We can know God. You and I don't have to come up with our own God. We don't have to take some bits and pieces of all these different things and kind of Frankenstein it together and say, okay, there's my God. You don't have to try to define God. God has defined himself. He has walked up and he has introduced himself and he has said, this is my name. This is who I am. I am going to show you who I am. And because he doesn't change, you can have confidence that the same God who showed himself to Moses 3,500 years ago is the same God who wants to meet you where you are today. You can know him and you can trust him. Because see, the fact that God never changes means that God always keeps his promises. It means that God will always do what God said he will do. He is who he is, and he will always be who he has always been. And he doesn't change, and he doesn't shift, and he is constant. That's the whole point of the statement. I am who I am. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that means that you can trust me because I never go back on my promises. 
Verse 16, he unpacks this. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has appeared to me. We were talking, sorry babe. Uh, when, we, when we were talking last night, Tracy was like, I'm going to read this passage, and it says over and over again, the Lord, of, uh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And it says over and over and over again. She's like, can I just say, like, the God of Abraham at all or something like that? Can we just, like, shorten this down a little bit? But there's a reason, there's a reason that it repeats over and over and over in this passage. Because God is making a point. I am the same God the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am the God who keeps my promises. Because 400 years ago, Moses, I made all these promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I want you to know, I haven't forgotten about those promises. I'm the same God that I was 400 years ago, and I'm the same God I was 4,000 years ago. And I will always be that same God. And I never forget what I have said, and I never forget my promises. And Anything that I tell you when there is nothing else in life to depend on, anything that I tell you, you can take it to the bank. You can trust it. You can trust me when there is nothing else to trust. He says, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. And he says in this passage, I know that Pharaoh's going to resist. I know he's not going to let you go. I know he's not going to let you go without a fight. But I'm the one who fights for you. And I will accomplish my purposes. And he actually goes at the very end there in verse 22, and he says, you're actually going to plunder the Egyptians. I'm going to bring you out with great wealth. Now, what is so interesting about this dialogue that God has with Moses in Exodus 3 is that it is almost the same as the promise that God gave to Abraham 400 years earlier in Genesis 15. Genesis 15, read it sometime. God shows up. He shows up to Abraham. And how does he show up? He shows up as fire. He shows up as a flaming fire pot. And then God says, I'm going to give all your people this land, Moses, but your descendants are going to be slaves for 400 years. And after that, I'm going to bring them out of their slavery and they're going to plunder the people who have, who have enslaved them and I am going to make them rich in the process. And now, 400 years later, God shows up to Moses and he says, Moses, I haven't forgotten that promise. Here I am, the same God, this this burning fire, and I am here to make good on my promises. You can trust me. When everything else is falling apart, and when everyone else has walked out on you, and when everyone else has gone back on the promises that they made to you, I don't go back on my promises. I'm the God who doesn't change. The God who's set apart, the God who comes near, the God who is with you. And that was true for Moses, but I would submit to you that that is actually more true for you and me. And here's why. Because 2,000 years ago, God didn't just show up as a burning bush. He showed up as a human being. And God didn't just send a mere man to deliver us. God himself came down to deliver us. And God didn't just hear our cries and see our suffering. He cried and he suffered with us. And God didn't just set us free from some oppressive earthly kingdom. He set us free from the kingdom of sin and death and hell and condemnation. Listen, Jesus walked through the wilderness so that he could bring us out of the wilderness. And now he welcomes us into the presence of God. 
you and me, who are holy, who are mess or unholy, who are who are messed up in and of ourselves, we can come boldly into the presence of a holy God because of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection. That's why we can experience the presence of God and not be consumed. Because Jesus was consumed for us. Because he took the punishment that rightly fell on our sin so that we could enter into the presence of a holy God without being destroyed. And now he goes even further than that. Now he places his spirit within us. And the very presence of the holy God lives inside of us. Like like the fire of God that made that bush burn, but it wasn't consumed. Those who are followers of Jesus, who trust in Jesus, have the living, holy fire of God living inside of them. And yet they're not consumed. Let me ask you to think for a minute. How would your life look differently if that was real to you? Like, not if it was just true, okay? So, like, I know that that's true, but I don't always live that way. So how would my life look different if that was the fundamental reality of my life? That I realized that the holy fire of God lives inside of me. How would my marriage look different? How would my parenting look look different? How would my friendships look different? How would my work look different? How would my job look different? How would it look different the way that I interact with my neighbors? How would the way that I spend my money look different? How would the things that I think and fixate on look different? How would my hopes and my dreams look different? How would all of my life look different if I realized I have the holy fire of God living inside of And listen, that doesn't mean that you always walk around in some kind of like ecstatic spiritual trance or something like that. It means that in the midst of regular, ordinary, everyday life, this is the God who's with you. And you can know the God who is holy, and you can know the God who comes near, and you can know that he will always keep his promises, that his love for you will never change that his commitment to you will never change because he will never change. He speaks to us. He speaks to us in the ordinary. One of the primary ways that he speaks to us in the ordinary is through the Lord's Supper. We're going to take it in just a minute. But think about what we're about to do. Ordinary bread. Ordinary juice, nothing magical, nothing special about it, and yet it is so much more than ordinary Because God says, Jesus says, I am here with you in the midst of it. And so, if you're a follower of Jesus, simply means you're trusting in his death and resurrection to make you right with God, to bring you into the presence of a holy God, then he invites us to come and to eat and to drink today. Even though we're so ordinary. Even though maybe there is nothing that we could bring to the table to say, God, I deserve to be with you. Yet he is the God who has come to us because the body and the blood of his son were broken for us. So we're going to do that in just a minute. The way that we do that, we have stations at the front. We'll have stations in the gallery in the back. And we simply come down the aisle and tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and take it and return to our seats. And maybe you're here and this is just kind of strange and kind of confusing. I realize this is like a crazy passage right here. And maybe you're not a follower of Jesus and maybe you got questions about, that's my hope. My hope that is for you today that you look at this and there are questions in your mind and there are things that you're not sure about. But, but here's my encouragement to you. Don't just walk by. Don't just 
walk by? Are you willing to ask the questions? Are you willing to investigate for yourself? Are you willing to have your paradigms challenged? Are you willing? Because it might be that God is, is wanting to show up and he's wanting to open up a whole new world of possibilities for you. And so we would encourage you, while, while those who are followers of Jesus come to take the bread and the cup, we would encourage you, don't just check out during this time, but think about it. What are the questions you have? What are the things that you need to investigate? We want to be a place for you to do that. So if you've got questions about that, I would love to speak with you uh, after the service or, or follow up with you sometime this week. Let's pray. Let's take the Lord's Supper. Father, you are the holy God. You're the God who is a consuming fire. You're the God who is holy, 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 so holy that... The angels of heaven cover their faces so holy that Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. God, I confess that so often I don't take you seriously. So often we don't take you seriously and we tone you down and we try to get you to conform to our expectations and we, we act like you're a tame God. Because you don't play by our rules and we thank you for that. Because if you played by our rules, the universe would, would be hopeless. So thank you that you step in. That you're not just the God who is different from us, but you're the God who has made yourself known to us. And thank you that you're the God who has shown yourself to us in Jesus Christ. And thank you that you're the God who has brought us to you through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Father, would you help us? I pray that we wouldn't just rush by. I pray that we wouldn't just ignore what you're saying. I pray that that as you're, you're seeking to show yourself to us in this moment or throughout this week, free us from the distractions that would so often pull us away from you. Would you help us to see you? Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Remind us of the beauty and the hope that we have in the body of Christ broken for us and his blood shed for us. In his name we pray. Amen.